here, and I hope today that we can take a journey together. It's one of my favorite things to do with Dillon Community Church is to study the Bible. All the guys, how many Iron Hour guys here today? A few of you? Oh, yeah, a bunch of you. That's great. Great to see. Man, do I miss Iron Hour on Wednesday morning, that men's group, our small groups, everyone else. So I don't want to uh, jump over that, but at the same time, uh, I've only got an hour and a half to speak. So, you know, we've got to get at this thing. I say that every time, but it's a, it's a lot of fun. Now, Jim is, he gave me one piece of information for what we're walking into this summer, and I say we editorially to include you, uh, but I'm going to kick it off, and that is to ask and consider the truth of and the implications of the gifts of God to us. Now, that is a broad scope. So I said, Jim, you want me to, you want to narrow the field, narrow the choke a little bit? And he's like, Exact words, you'll figure it out. So, you know, so I'm going to leave all of the actual direction he's going to Jim. But I knew enough about all of our time together and his ministry here that where I'm going to take us today is going to fit right into what he's been doing in his series. Like, who would teach from Leviticus as a series, right? What in the world? There's actually, we're going to learn maybe a couple of things this morning, I hope you can come with, that because these grace gifts, by the way, that's the term, not going to do too much of this, but charisma is the word for grace. It's like charis, joy, these things are all, this is a word group that all has all these ideas of these gifts, and so these grace gifts Spiritual gifts, we use that term, but maybe grace gifts is better, and so as we're walking in, all these things are given to us, and oh, by the way, it includes struggles. Now, how do I know that? Now, I could tell you my own story, and you would go, oh, well, that's quaint, that's, that's nice, you know, it's good that this has happened and that has happened, right? I've got stories. If we started around, every single one of you has a story that includes struggles, right? This is the reality of being in a fallen world. But I'm going to ask us to take a look and see if those struggles may not be as integral to the gifts as the blessings on the other side. I think that that actually is true, and we can access that. And if we didn't have the whole story, the gift of the grand narrative, the backstory we really couldn't make a lot of sense of our current story or the story around the time of Jesus or the story of the church in its early iterations or all of those stories. We need the backstory, and God gave it to us as a gift. How many of you have heard of the Bible, right? We have this gift given to us. That's one form, but the backstory is actually a crucial gift from God to us. Now, I'm going to ask you this. What if we hadn't have received the words written down? Where could we go to kind of learn a little bit about that? Well, if you take your mind back in the story, you go all the way back to Moses. And prior to Moses, we don't know that they ever wrote anything down. We don't know that. It was verbal story, verbal transition. They kept the transmission going, they kept it alive, but it was probably not written down. What if we had never received that? But instead, God decided, okay, with Moses, new approach. God writes the 10 on the stone, and then here we go. We're going to write this down. We have that. 
what would the Christ event and Christianity even mean without the story behind it? Do you make the mistake that a lot of Christians that I hear on television and read at different times, where we like anachronistically think Christianity started like in the 20th century? Or we think it started in the first century, which may be even a bigger mistake. We have the opportunity to receive the gift. The Holy Spirit was given to them in a very unusual way in the first century. Well, they had been receiving the Holy Spirit's words to them for centuries prior in a very unusual way. I'd like for us to take a few minutes and look at that. First of all, the story is primarily Jewish. Did that word bother you? It's bothered a lot of Christians through the centuries. It is primarily a Jewish story. Somebody give me a quick answer. What was Jesus' vocation? Incorrect answer. What was Jesus' adult vocation? He was a Jewish rabbi. We all jumped to Carpenter. His vocation was, he was probably developed, possibly his rabbi was John the Baptist. I mean, there's some very interesting things to consider. Where did he receive his shmikah, his authority, right? But Jesus now comes on the scene as a Jewish rabbi. All Jesus did was teach using Jewish rabbinical method of going back to the Old Testament. If you think anything Jesus said was brand new, you're not paying attention to the backstory. The backstory was the gift that Jesus kept going back to and making sense of, and sometimes not making sense of, but still pulling it forward. And you'll understand some more things about how this is working out later. It's a Jewish story. The second thing is, it's a Gentile story, which is just as crazy as it being a Jewish story. When you stop and think about those first followers, and they're asking the question, what's going on? They're sure he's bringing the Jewish messianic entire kingdom to bear, right? That's what they're certain the entire time. Then all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute, something else is going on here. There's Gentile stories involved in this. We're going to look at one of those today. Take a few minutes to open the scripture and look at one of these Gentile stories. I want you, though, to consider this as a study. Go back through the book of Acts and look at how everybody who preaches in the book of Acts, from Peter to Stephen to Peter again to Paul in, in chapter 13, wherever you are, go through and see how they preach. Are they using the New Testament? It doesn't even exist. They use constantly the Old Testament as reference to make sense of what their current situation is. We have that opportunity. This is a gift that's been given to you. Don't start at the Gospels. Don't start at the book of Romans. Start back further in the story. That's our goal today. It's not either a replacement story. It's not a story where the Christians and the church came along and now we kick the Jews out of the story and they're unnecessary. It's not the story. A lot of people have taught that. That's not it. Do some research. But we're going to look at these stories. And I want to tell you this as kind of a, as a prep. Because here's the thing. If we don't have the backstory, how do we deal with like the biggest and toughest issues 
even in our story today, much less the stories back through the centuries. If you don't know the backstory, how do you even discuss that? I now work at Home Depot. I worked at Home Depot before, enjoyed it very much. I have a Home Depot about a mile and three quarters from my house, so I'm working there again and enjoying it very much. I have theological conversations all the time in my store. Why do you think that is? I'm actually looking for ways to connect the story into the story. So one of my coworkers, after probably 30 of these conversations, because we sit next to each other, she came in one day as she flipped through her phone and she showed me a picture of this beautiful little girl. And she said, this girl was shot in the Buffalo school shooting. What do we do with that? She said to me, when we were talking before, is this a free will thing? This is the language she's using with me. She grew up in the Catholic church, has not been to church in 30 years since she went to college. She's like, is this a free will thing? So what should I do? What would you say? What would your church teach? What would the people in your small group say? So I said, I got no idea. No, I didn't. I said, let's, let's think about it a minute. Let's think. First of all, no way that God wants to trivialize or make a nothing out of that little girl's loss. No way. No way God didn't feel that. No way that's a good thing. No way. But we're going to start there and go, so why does it happen? Why does that ever happen? I said, think about the story of the Jews. You've, you've heard the Bible. You know how this goes. It's not like they just come along, Abraham shows up, and they're all just walking around on clouds for the rest of their days, and everything goes well, and there's never a famine, and the soldiers never come over the hill, and everything. You know better than that. This story is full of trouble, full of millions of dead bodies. I said, that's the story that's in there. The question is, how did they come to terms with it? How does this go? How do, you, how do you deal with? And I said, somehow we have to look at this thing. I said, I have come to the conclusion that this is a redemption story. You know that language? Redemption story? But think about what is the precursor, what's necessary for redemption to occur. You have to have something to be redeemed from. You can't just say, oh, God redeemed the world. There's, there's, if there was nothing to be redeemed from, you've got nothing. You've got no pain. You've got no suffering. There's no, and here's what I said to her, what this does is it gives us these stories of incredible situations. I said, Julie, I don't know how to really feel great about the Holocaust. I asked myself that question for my entire life, and I always will. But I do know this. God has figured out ways to redeem that terrible story. I said, stop and, and just run the tape forward a couple years after. And the people who have lost six million plus come to the world and they say, can we have a place again? Is that okay? Can we have that? What did the world do? Do you know how impossible it was that the world, the United Nations unanimously, that NATO unanimously, that the world, that Great Britain said, Okay, we're a little begrudging it, but yes, we'll move out and let them have a place. Do you know how impossible that was? You know how small that window was of opportunity? Would that happen today? You know better than that. 
as a redemptive move, God gives them the land. How is all that sorting out you know, in eschatology? I don't know. All I know is that's a redemptive move that happened. And I said, Julie, without the contrast of the trouble, we can't get over here to this best picture. I wish there was a better way. But I said, stop and think about the great virtues. Love, joy, peace, hope. They don't mean anything without the opposite to be true. There's no definition point. There's no comparison. She literally, when I said that, her eyes went, oh. She looked, and Jim knows what I'm doing because she looked up at the ceiling like, I haven't thought. And we talked a little bit more, and then she came back and she said, I think that comparison thing is the nugget. She said, I've never even thought about that before. And then she said this, sorry. She said, if I could go to church and we could talk about things like that, I'd go every week. Because that's not what we do, right? Often. Just not what we do. We're missing opportunities because we forget about the actuality of the backstory that's been given to us as a gift, and we forget how to use that to manage the current scenario. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes, and we're going to look at a Bible story because otherwise I'll just keep talking. So let's do this. Let's turn to Acts. I told you all these sermons go on. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8. Or if you have a Bible app, go to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to look at one of the small ones in here so we have time to process it a little bit. Here's what I want you to be thinking about. How does this go down where the backstory helps inform the current story to make sense to move forward? Because that's why Luke put all of those sermons in, all of those stories. That's why it's all there in the book of Acts, is to help us gather what happened and how did they take the gift of the backstory to make sense of the current story? And here's what happens. Let's go to uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 3. And it tells us right there in 6, and then we're going to skip down a few verses. And I'm going to read this. You know this, Saul, the, uh, the pre-Paul Saul, was ravaging the church and entering House after house, he dragged men and women off and committed them to prison, and many died. You know that. Is that good news? No. Wouldn't you have thought, well, gosh, what are we supposed to do? Wait, don't we have rights as Roman citizens? Wait, should they be treating us this poorly? What, what do they do? Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them, the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And an angel says to Philip, down to verse 26, skip down to 26. I wanted to set that background up because it's like, okay, this is what Philip is doing. He's, he's not whining. He's not complaining. He's not trying to fight for all of this stuff. He's not trying to change the narrative. He's saying, what is the narrative telling us right now? And he's using only Old Testament. That's all he's got. And he's teaching. And the signs that the gifts are giving them that are new. And they're working together, these two things in concert with one another. Verse 26 says, An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He wasn't transported magically down to where the Ethiopian eunuch, you know this story where we're headed into, he had to choose to go. 
And the Spirit said, if you go, here's your opportunity. He sends him in the middle of the desert. And Philip went down to the, um, excuse me, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Kandake, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Listen to these words, you know it, you're familiar with it. The prophet Isaiah, and, and the spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless somebody guides me? And so the eunuch invites Philip to come up and sit with him. This is not some go bash somebody with the, with the story. He's invited in. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Is this the good news? Do you hear anything good in there? What did you hear? All you hear is like slaughter and, and being led to the humiliation and justice being denied and life taken away. Is this good news? Now, who is this passage talking about? Somebody tell me. How do you know that? Isaiah 53. But if you read Isaiah 53, does Isaiah 53 insert Jesus' name in there? We forget, and we think back anachronistically, and we forget that they often didn't know what these Old Testament passages were referring to. They didn't know that. But in, right in this passage, now we're hearing what seems like pretty bad news to me, but Philip is in the pass, in the chariot. First of all, there's a scroll that the eunuch is reading, and now he's like checking this out, and he reads this passage. Now what is Philip supposed to do? Well, I really don't want to talk about all that bad news stuff not what he does what does it say about the the eunuch asked this question about whom i ask you does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else then philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture he told him the good news about jesus beginning right there he doesn't say oh i gotta go get my copy of the gospel of john which hasn't been written yet he doesn't say oh i gotta tell you this i gotta tell he says beginning with this scripture he moves forward and tells him the good news. And you know the story, the, the eunuch ends up coming to faith. Now let's process back through this just a minute. First of all, this person is coming and going from where? Ethiopia to where? He'd been to Jerusalem. Do you remember that detail in here? He'd been to Jerusalem. Why? There's a big festival of celebration and worship in Jerusalem. What does it say about this person? Is he likely a ethnic jew likely not especially since he's in the court of the ethiopian queen he's more likely a convert to judaism who's going to jerusalem to worship the one true living god and he's reading unbelievably in this time frame he's got a copy of a scroll of the book of isaiah this is so unusual we are so used to it because we got it around right Again, we forget the gift that has been given to us. I've got dozens of opportunities to always have the scripture right at the end of my hands. 
he had this scroll. And so it's like, what is going on? What's his backstory? You know, he's probably come to faith somehow. And now he's come up to worship. And he's leaving. Now, what in the world is a eunuch? <laughs> a eunuch is a person who is in a specific situation where they're incapable of having children and they're given a specific job in a court, right? And this person, according to the law of Moses, is excluded from a whole lot of involvement at the temple. He's kept on the outside. He's not welcome in. I mean, that's just part of the story. And it's a very clear one of the 613. In fact, a couple of the places that it shows up. But then the eunuch asks the question, after he reads about this suffering servant, why does the eunuch say, wait, who is he writing about? Is he writing about himself or somebody else? I'll tell you this, if you know some of the backstory, the Midrash teaching of the Jews was that this is Isaiah, the author of Isaiah at this point, writing about his own story. They're, they've been carried off to Babylon. They have all kinds of suffering. You think they hear Jesus? They don't hear Jesus. It takes a while to get to that. But you have to go back in the story and say, what was this thinking back here? And the reason he's asking is he's wanting to know, wait, does this have anything to do with me? Now, how many of you have ever had somebody take you forward a couple chapters and see where Philip went with this story? Has anybody ever had a pastor preach from Isaiah 56? Turn to Isaiah 56 if you have it in your Bibles in front of you. Most people, I, I'm amazed, do not know this. And I'll be honest, there's a lot of time I didn't know this. I think of Isaiah 53, I think of Jesus, problem solved, right? We've got all that we need. Philip opens his mouth and starting at this scripture goes forward. Let me read this. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation come, my will come, my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Shabbats, the Sabbaths, not profaning them, keeps his hand from doing evil. Now listen to this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, does that fit this guy? Not, let not that foreigner say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am nothing but a dry tree. Is this unbelievable? For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Shabbats and choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Who is this talking about? <laughs> the guy is in the chariot and Philip goes, he knows his text well enough. He goes, let's just go forward a little bit. We just have to turn a little bit and we're going to get to this. Better than sons and daughters, I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Shabbat and does not profane it holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. You're welcome. Come on. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Of my house, it shall be called a house of prayer. Does that sound familiar? You remember Jesus driving out the money changers? He's quoting this. My house will be called. And 
God even goes so far as to say their sacrifices, when they bring their sacrifices, they're going to be good. Unbelievable. You, eunuch, you have been called. I will gather all of you. This is the story. Did you know Isaiah 56 did that? After Isaiah 53? That's not a shame moment. I'm not doing that thing. But honestly, we so isolate and draw down, and we want to just pull Jesus out of the passage, and we're kind of done with Isaiah. Philip says, eunuch, we can start right here. Have you ever wondered why the guy said, I'm in. Where is there water? Baptize me. I'm in. I want to be part of this story that you're telling me. It's because this is written to him. The Jesus story is his story. But without the gift of the backstory, there's no way to even access the information to make sense of that. And I promise you, if you take the time to go through all of the sermons in the book of Acts and read these Old Testament passages and go back and pull, you'll go, oh, that's what, oh, well, that sheds light on, ah, because the Jewish people knew their text, first of all. And second of all, they had the gift as part of their quiver. They had it. I'll ask you this simple question. Did the captivity in Babylon work? Was that effective? Did it change Israel's story? Our our knee-jerk reaction is to say no. In fact, Jesus landed in a horrible scenario within the Jewish culture. I would say to you that the synagogue system that was created during the time of captivity and brought back to Israel with them became the foundation for the church. Literally, the verb is the exact same thing that was used of the church at the beginning, just a Greek version of it, to gather people together. And they started modeling themselves and, in fact, usually gathering in the synagogue to start things. The synagogue is our foundation as churches. Now, let me just do this with you for a second. Let me personalize this. How would you start your story of faith with someone? If an associate came up to you at work and wanted to start a conversation, where are you going to start that? Do you start it in the backstory? Do you just tell your own experiences? How How do you formulate that? How do you make sense of things with people like our political scenario, like Ukraine, like all of the shootings, like COVID? How do you make sense of those things? What do you do on a personal level? I promise you, with some work, you can learn more access to information that can be pulled from the biggest story, which is the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and it can be brought forward into the new to make sense of it. And, and you have a spectrum of millennia to speak from. You're not just try, trying to talk about solving something since the year 2000. Now, I'm going to ask you this when this is even harder. What would your church, what would your small group, what would your franchise or your denomination, how, how, are you, how, would you, how are you handling our current scenarios? Are you trying to attach just to a current solution a political party, uh, uh, whatever, a, a church pastor, uh, what, are you, what are you trying to attach to? How, how would your 
larger group, your congregation, processed with different possibilities. I have been somewhat fascinated watching since COVID. How many of you have heard of COVID? What has your church said on the backside of COVID that is the main goal that they want to be about? What's the mission now? How many of your churches have said, you know, what we need to do, we just, we have got to get back to normal around here. We got to put it back together. Here's the harder question. Were we being effective before COVID as churches in the American society? You can check any pieces of data you want from any source on the internet and you'll find the same kind of phrase. Gallup poll tells you this. In the 1940s, post-war is the pinnacle of church involvement in the United States. 76% of the people at its highest peak said, I'm a part of a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. 76%. That went up and down for a lot of years. Up and down. Spiked again about 73% in 2000. You know where we are now? 46%. COVID didn't hit till 2020. That means we had two decades of abject ineffectivity. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon to figure out that basically what is happening is the generation that was committed is dying off and there's nobody coming back in. Why would we want to get back to normal? Why would we think that's the way to go? Why would we do that? What else could we do? What could we learn from the backstory? What could we learn maybe from the synagogues? I encourage you to uh, ask yourself on a personal level, how could I invest? Do some more study. Um, if you've not heard of the Bema podcast, you'll pick up some things if you study this same passage in there. I learned from Rabbi Marty Solomon. He's not an official rabbi, but he's a devoted follower of Jesus who's an ethnic Jew and has studied under Ray Vanderlaan and a couple other people. Phenomenal insight. Um, read any book with Lois Tverberg's name on the title or on the authorship. She's fantastic. Takes the Old Testament, brings it into language stuff. It's super accessible. I guarantee you, you could all read that and get so much from it. Read, reading the scripture through Western eyes. You'll understand that we're literally just looking at the scripture, expecting it to do things that speak to our culture, post-Greek, post-Enlightenment, post-everything. And honestly, we're missing so much that's in there. Get your small group involved. Go back to your church leaders. Ask them, is this what we really want to do? And if so, why? And what else could we do? Is there something else? I, uh, 
I could tell you 20 more stories from associates. I'll tell you this one. One of the gals in my department came to me at, and she was telling me uh, just a couple things and we're talking, again, a churchish background. She'd been raised in Roman Catholicism and then met a friend in college who took her to an evangelical church and she enjoyed that at this Baptist church for a couple of years. Well, I had told her that day because I was working a couple aisles over from her, I had dropped this box of tile on this left big toe. Now, you all go, oh, because if you know, this is heavy, and it hits that toe. And I said to her, man, am I ever glad you weren't over in aisle seven a couple of minutes ago, because I'm a little embarrassed about the language that was flying around in that aisle. And uh, she's, she was like, oh, man, that's so funny. And she came back to me, and after she told me a little bit about her background, she said, you know, the reason I came back is because I didn't think pastors talked about stuff like that. I didn't think pastors told on themselves when they weren't perfect. I was like, all I can do is apologize. And then she said, so I was going to this Baptist church, and I was, they, we had this, like, dinner. After, and, and you can see in her mind, she's standing there, college, right? She says, I'm, I'm talking, and I walk up to the pastor, and I'm starting to talk with him, and I'm super glad to be, and I had this brand new necklace that my mom had given me that was a crucifix. And we're talking a couple minutes, and finally the pastor can't take it anymore. And he says to me, what are you doing wearing that cross with Jesus on it? She doesn't have an answer to that. She doesn't have any idea. She literally said, I was so embarrassed, I turned around, I walked out, and I never walked back in the place again. She said, I've not been back to church. You know, missed opportunities, right? But she, after all these decades, she processes it with, with me just because I told her I dropped tile on my toe. And so now what am I going to do? So now I say, you know, this is the story. This is what has happened to everyone. Almost always people came because they'd been ostracized. They'd be, they were a momser. They were pushed out. They were in the margins. They were not the main ones. Who did Jesus talk to? I'm like, Tony, you got to know. That if Jesus would have seen you, he'd have looked you in the eye and he'd have given you value and hope. He'd have done that. Go back in the story. Learn more of the story. Get the story. Use it as a gift to help understand and, and take forward. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time today. Um, thank you for your grace to us, your patience with us. Thank you for all of the gifts. And this gives us a foundation that we can build from. Help us to uh, challenge each other, spur one another on. Help us to uh, learn to be humble. We have to learn that. Help us, Lord, now, post-COVID, what should we do? What should we do uh, with the, the race discussion in our culture? with the abortion discussion, with the LGBTQ community, with all, and so many different people and places where we have opportunities. How are we going to enter those conversations, Lord? Help us not to push away, but to actually move forward. Help us to have the backstory with us to come and to speak from your grand narrative. And I pray that in Jesus' name.